Our scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, and the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies uh, jostled with each other within her, and she said, why is, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him uh, either the... Esau either means hairy or it means red, and, and the Hebrew scholars are not quite sure, but they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Heel Grabber, or Jacob, Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he, he was also called Edom, and from him come the, the, the people called the Edomites. And Edom definitely means red. They, the Hebrew scholars say it means red. He's called Edom for his red stew. Jacob replied, first, sell, your, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. The only place that I know of in all of the book of Genesis where the narrator passes judgment on one of the characters, here it is. So Esau, he says, despised his birthright. In the Cheney family, we have uh, four daughters, one son. I know probably most of you or all of you know that about us. But when I'm meeting somebody for the first time and we're striking up casual conversation, inevitably inevitably that piece of information comes out and the person normally says something along the lines of, wow, four daughters. You you and your boy are pretty outnumbered, aren't you? you how are you, how do you possibly make it in that environment? And, and I say, barely. <laughs> yeah, it takes incredible fortitude, really. To <laughs> but what really goes through my mind in those moments is, I'm glad that I, I'm not in the shoes, in my sister's shoes. 
my sister has two daughters and two twin six-year-old boys, and they, they fight all the time. Every morning when the alarm clock rings, there's a fight over who gets to turn it off. Every morning when they get run to the breakfast table, the fight is over who gets to read the back of the cereal box. Um, when they go off to school, who gets their preferred seat in the Suburban? You know, there's just endless who gets this and who gets that. Who gets to dress up as Spider-Man at Halloween? Like every breath they take is a competition for oxygen. Two twin brothers fighting over small potatoes. It's, it's not life and death. But what happens when you have two brothers who are fighting truly over life and death, fighting over a birthright? You see, the practice of all ancient cultures was birthright. Or the other title we would give it is the law of primogeniture. The, the law of the firstborn son inheriting the vast, vast majority of the family's estate. It was to the firstborn that all of the land was given, or at least the majority of the land, the deed to the land. The firstborn was the one who would be accorded all of the honor. He'd be the one who made all the judgments concerning family matters. When the patriarch died, he would be the one who let lead the, who would lead the family forward into its brighter days. While the secondborn son and all subsequently born sons would pretty much be on the outside looking in. I mean, to think about your your whole life either being made or breaking, make or break on the basis of the very first moments that you come out of the womb. You can imagine how frustrating that would be, especially so if you're a twin brother. Because everything depends on who is it that gets out of the, <laughs> the birth canal first. There's a, and that's the picture we have in our passage this morning. There's like a race to get out. And these two brothers are jostling to be the, the front, at the front of the line and to be the first one to, to cross the finish line. And Esau, as strong as he is, is, is about to win. And, and little Jacob reaches out his, his hand and he grabs it. He's trying to pull him back into the, into the birth canal. That's what the image is is all about. He, he grabs his heel and tugs, but alas, his strength is not enough, and, and he misses out on the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow by, by a mere two minutes. It's easy for us to look back and, and scold ancient cultures, isn't it, for, for their backwards practices and behaviors. But what you need to understand is that the law of birthright, the law of primogeniture, was, was there for the purpose of survival. I mean, you had to concentrate your, your resources into one person, especially in families where there were many sons. I mean, if you had seven sons, you cannot afford to equally distribute all of the family wealth and resources to seven sons. You're going to spread yourself too thin. So what they did is they concentrated all of their hopes and dreams for the future and all of the primary wealth and, and power resources of the family, on that one firstborn son. And in, in the passage this morning, the, it seems like they made the right decision. 
is the alpha male in this brotherly relationship? It's clearly the huntsman. The man who loves to be outdoors. The guy who goes and hunts and fishes and drives a pickup truck. And, and the guy who is, oh, he is so hairy. <laughs> chapter 27, two chapters later, when Jacob comes along and he tries to, to deceive the nearly blind Isaac. He, he dresses up, as you, you may know the story, he dresses up as Esau. And in order to do so, he actually covers his bare arms with what? With with goat hair. That's really hairy. <laughs> and we, I don't know, my, my family laughs at me. I think they say I have hair phobia, but uh, I, I'm disgusted by like that level of, of woolly mammoth <laughs> existence. But they would have thought that it was cool. I mean, to have a red, hairy man, strong, burly, smokes, uh, Chews tobacco, he drives, drives a big old F-150. He's red and hairy like a lion. And that's kind of the image of this boy, this man, this lion figure who goes out and hunts for the game and brings back fresh game for his father, father Isaac. Isaac turns out to be really one of the most pathetic patriarchs. Isaac should be out providing for his own family. And instead, the picture is his son is always out bringing food back to, back to his dad. And his dad loves it. His, his dad favors Esau uh, completely. We get a very different picture of Jacob, don't we? We have here a boy who loves to stay at home and, and help in the kitchen. A boy who is a mama's boy. And he seems... If if Esau is the alpha male, then Jacob is like the the gamma or delta male. He's he's way down there on the pecking order. I I don't want to overplay it, but I think it's safe to assume that as these two boys grew up, Esau was always the dominant one. So every time these two boys wrestled to, with each other, we know who won the fight. Every time they were competing for the attention and affection of their fathers, we know who their father uh, doted on. Every time, in almost every instance, in, in every situation, Esau was in a position of dominance until this day. Uh, what an interesting story. And I think it's one of those that every parent who has multiple children can relate to this dynamic. What, ha- what happens when the, the weaker or younger of your children is surprisingly given a privilege or an opportunity or a possession that the, the older child, the stronger child, desperately wants, needs? What happens when there is a reversal of the, the, of the hierarchy of power? If you're a younger sibling, you know what happens is sheer ecstasy. <laughs> When you finally have something that they want and can't get. You know, uh, I can imagine my two nephew twins, who, as I said, I think I said they're both six years old. can imagine the younger, the smaller of the two coming home from school one day with a large Hershey's chocolate bar. And his brother absolutely loves chocolate more than, more than life. You're going to, you have to share that with me, don't you? And his, his younger brother, you know, Cackles with delight. Never. <laughs> I'll never share it with you. Then he goes to his mom, uh, my sister. Mom, you've, you've got to make him share with me. And 
every smart mother says, no, that's your, son, you know, that's your sibling's chocolate. He, he can do with it as, as he wishes. How do these parents, how do these dynamics normally play out? Well, after a, a long period of, of groveling and begging, inevitably the younger child tries to strike a deal. And they say, well, I'll give you a square of my chocolate if you give me um, your limited edition Batman skateboard. And the older child is going to say, my limited edition Batman skateboard. I can never do that. You're crazy. And then, okay, the bartering system goes on. Well, fine. If it's not going to be that, then at least you have to let me borrow the skateboard whenever I want to. And then the other brother says, ah, okay. And he agrees. And then the younger brother then says, but one more condition. He adds one more condition after the the agreement was was almost settled. But that's how the bartering system works. What do you do when you're in a position of power that you never had power before? You make, to begin with, the most outlandish demand possible. You, you shoot for the moon. Nobody in that, in that situation goes for something small. They go for the, the biggest thing they can possibly imagine. And so that's what's happening here. Esau, uh, you, you want a cup of, of stew? Well, this does happen to be the finest cup of lentil soup this side of the Jordan River. <laughs> I have spent years, at least days, slaving over this, this pot of soup, stew. But uh, just for you, my dear brother, I am willing to cut a deal. How about this? Let's see. What should we, what should we make it? How about bread and soup for your birthright? Everybody knows the rules of this game. Esau is supposed to say, my birthright? Who are you out of your mind? Who would, uh, who would give away their most valuable and priceless possession for something as, as simple as a cup of, of soup? What kind of chump do you take me for? Do you think I was just born yesterday? Who would mortgage their family and their future their job, their reputation for piddly porridge. Who would sacrifice all of that for something so simple as a cup of soup? Do you know who would do that? (laughs) You would. You would. Pastors do it all the time. I would. I mean, it seems like every week we hear of some, some new sex scandal. Pastor goes off and has an adulterous affair. It seems like every week we're surprised, um, every month we're surprised when we watch a couple who take 20 years of marriage and they, they just throw it into the trash as, as, as one of them you know, decides to enjoy 20 minutes. You would, I would, politicians would, teenagers would. They get behind the the wheel of an automobile drunk beyond their wits. We would. What 
What strikes me here is that upon further inspection, you and I are so Esau-like on so many different levels. And, um, Andy Stanley, large, big church pastor in Atlanta, he spoke about this at a conference some years back, just how we suffer uh, from from we suffer from focalism bias. Focalism is the condition where we take one piece of information and we allow that piece of information to like blot out all everything else. Focalism is is when that very attractive girl walks into your high school algebra class who she just transferred to your school and she is ravishing. She's so beautiful. And when you see her, everything else blurs. Or, or it could be a guy, just that studly figure who every time your, your uh, math teacher starts lecturing about factoring polynomial equations, you find your, <laughs> this magnetic pull turning your head to the side as, as you, you want to you look at this guy. Even if he doesn't know anything about you or ever care about you, you can still remember him. You remember where he sat. You remember what he, what he wore. You remember... Um, you just remember all of that. Focalism obscures all of reality. And we, have, we know that this happens when we're trying to buy a new car and we find ourselves obsessing over whether or not I get the L.L. Bean interior package with the beige leather or whether or not this one over here has the, the, chrome, the chrome wheels and you find yourself spending hours thinking about the, the lack of granite, granite countertops in this house versus the small laundry room in the next house. I mean, you find focalism. It, everything is blown out of proportion. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and Esau does it over a cup of soup. Then we discover in this passage, verse 31 or 32, I think it is, the ridiculous hyperbole and embellishment of his present sufferings. <laughs> Notice Jacob replies, first sell me your birthright and Esau. Well, look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? I read that. I'm like, I think that is so me. That is so, that is so us. That is so teenager, right? That we like, we massively overstate the, the level of our present sufferings. I mean, Esau, I get it. You're tired. You're hungry. You came in. You didn't take adequate provisions when you went out to hunt, and you've got low blood sugar. But really, you're not going to die. It's going to take you 20 minutes to command some slave to go and fix you some more food. I mean, haven't you heard yourself say outrageous and outlandish things like that before? Um, If I have to be around this man for one more day. I am going to (laughs) snap. If I have to ride my bike home from school one more day. (laughs) And then there's the lie of the expected payout. Our, Our brains, psychologists tell us, lie to us. They promise a future payout that is not the least bit realistic. If I get this thing, if I get this person, if I accomplish this feat, then I'm going to experience on a level of zero to ten, something along the lines of an eight. I know it's going to be an eight. It's going to, it's going to blow my mind. It's going to finally satisfy me. And of course it ends up being a three. And then with the passage of time, that three becomes a two. 
And then with the passage of a few years, that, that two becomes a negative two. But no, at the moment, our brains, I don't know if it's dopamine that gets released or what's the physiological activity going on, but it says that you are, if you have it, it it's going to be your savior and it's going to make everything better. And so we have to have that thing and we have to have it, well, not an hour from now, not 20 minutes from now, but I've got to have it now. Robert Alter, noted Hebrew scholar, he has a cool translation of the first five book, books of the Bible. I forget the title of it, but some translation he does on the Pentateuch. I bought it just a week ago. And, he, you know, as a Hebrew scholar, he's very in tune with the nuances of, of the language. And here's what he notices. He notices the impatience in Esau's voice, where he literally says, let me gulp down some of this red, red stuff. Literally. Quote, the, the famished brother cannot even come up with the ordinary Hebrew word for stew. And instead, he points to the bubbling pot impatiently and literally as this red, red. The verb then he uses for gulping occurs nowhere else in the Bible, but in rabbinic Hebrew, it's reserved for, exclusively for, the feeding of animals. That's a great, great uh, description. Because it, it is, it's an animal, it's an animal appetite. You're acting like a beast. Focalism, it's all about the soup. Need, my present situation is intolerable. Payout, this will make everything better. Appetite, give it to me now. I'm an animal who has to eat. At this point in the story, it would have been really great for Esau's sake if if someone there w- was there to help him take inventory of the situation, like Esau, Esau is on the 12-kid career track, sort of, at this point. He's scheduled to have the 12 sons of Esau, which are going to be the 12 tribes of Esau. And from the, the 12 sons of Esau will, be, will come the great son Joseph, who will end up delivering not only Esau's clan and tribe, but the entire nation of Egypt from, from famine. He, he will be Joseph of Esau. Uh, and then Judah is going to come from the, the line of, of Esau. And, and from Judah will come nothing short of the Messiah himself. Judah, who is the, the lion, will himself give birth to a lion, the lion of the tribe of, of Judah. And Esau, if you stay on this career path, you realize what your birthright means, don't you? God is pledging himself to be your God, so much so that when God refers to himself in the future, he will be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's what your birthright means to you. What he needs is somebody to walk into the room, slap him across the face, wake him up, and speak a little bit of truth into his life. And I just wonder if God couldn't use the sermon as that action for you. To wake you up. Those of you who are asleep and need to be brought back to your senses. Wake up. 
Don't, don't you see what you have in, in your birthright in Jesus Christ? I'm a good Calvinist. I know that all of this happened according to God's plan. All of this was was sort of, uh, it was predestined to happen, so to speak, based upon God's words to Rebecca and that prophecy. And, and yet, and yet it's also a lesson for us. My dear brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews writes, Hebrews 12, 16, my dear brothers and sisters, see that none of you are sexually immoral and none of you are godless as Esau who for a single meal sold his birthright as a son. Verse 17, afterward, as you know, he, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what, what he had done. He's, he's, he's writing that to a bunch of Christians on Sunday morning. In fact, the book of Hebrews, we believe, is probably one very long sermon. <laughs> and he's saying it to a bunch of people just like us. You could possibly sell away your birthright. One of the lessons we learned from this passage is that any one of us at any time is capable of doing just about anything. That there is absolutely no level of stupidity or wickedness that our hearts cannot be drawn into. Uh, the, The world, the flesh, and the devil will sell you out in a heartbeat. And if you don't think that's true of yourself, if you don't think that the situation is really that dire, then... You're probably standing pretty close to the edge already. No. Do not, my brothers and sisters, be sexually immoral or be godless as Esau. Godless? Me? God? How could I be? How could I be godless? So how are they being godless? They were being godless by making small compromises. They were, uh, they had stopped regularly meeting for public worship. Do not forsake the gathering together. Uh, of, in public worship, the author says, they, they had started to lose their distinctive Christian consciences and behaviors and practices. So they started to blend back in with, with their culture. Slowly and slowly, the, the drift continued until they were ready to do the unthinkable, which was to deny the Messiah. So that's one point. The second, I guess, is really closely tied to this. It's a Tim Keller quote where he says, You never do sin. Sin does you. You never commit sin. Sin commits you. People think that when you do a sin, when you break God's law, when you lie, when you use somebody, when you trample on somebody, when, when, you, when you sin, you feel like that's just a, an event. That's just one action. But it's not. The Bible says that, that when you sin, you don't just do an event you, and then pass on from it. You create and you release a devastating power that careens around your life in, indefinitely. And what I understand him at least to mean by that is, is you keep making those small compromises and, and it will, it will definitely burn you. And you'll say, in the middle of it, I still love God. I'm not breaking any explicit rules. But, but all the while, and you've seen it, I've seen it, you're uncaging the lion. You're letting this devastating power careen around your life until 
dare I say, you reach a point of no return. Finally, last words. Many commentators who read this story are highly critical of Jacob. Jacob is the villain. Jacob is this conniving, scheming uh, brother who swindles his, his, uh, his, his brother Esau out of his birthright. No, that's not what happened, is it? He, he wasn't holding a gun. He wasn't forcing Esau to do anything. If Esau values his birthright so little, then that's his fault. Like the seller, in any transaction, the seller is is responsible to know the value of what they are selling. It's not the purchaser's responsibility to explain why the price should be higher. If Esau places such a low value on his birthright, that is not Jacob's fault. And friends, you are responsible to to know the value of Jesus Christ and the value of your birthright in Jesus Christ. God knows the value of that. God knows. But do you know and if, if you really believe Jesus is the pearl of great price, then why all the compromises? Why sell him so short? Of course, I'm not saying this to every one of you. <laughs> I, I don't even know who the you is many times when I'm preaching. I'm not trying to be passive-aggressive and take a conversation from three weeks ago that you and I had and try to get back <laughs> at you now. I don't know who the you is, but you know who the you is. And the Holy Spirit knows who the you is. And you know that you, you you're sliding into an abyss. If Jesus is the pearl of great, great price, why are you devaluing him by, by your, uh, your behavior? The, our everyday behaviors affect eternity. Like all of us as parents, we would say that the, the deepest hope and desire of our hearts is that our kids would be with us in heaven. <laughs> like who wouldn't say that? Um, that we would wake up on resurrection morning all together and arm in arm, walk through the, the fields of the new heavens and the new earth, dance a jig together, sing a song of praise to the Lamb together. That's what every one of us desire for us and, and our children. And that's what every pastor desires. Like every pastor hopes and prays that every one of his sheep are like that. So, your daily decisions affect eternity. If you don't want to sell your birthright in Jesus Christ... Um, and sell it for a cup of soup, then stop selling him short today. Stop being a slave to your appetite. Get in Christian community where you can have somebody who would speak hard truth into your life, slap you across the face, wake you up a little bit, help you do a reinventory, a reassessing your priorities and, and values. Get back into worship Pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, into temptation of godlessness, but deliver me from that evil. Um, Get back into a thriving relationship with God. Start by coming back to your senses.